Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss strategies and tactics to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's interview is with Ben Green. Ben is a Chief Development Officer for Food for the Hungry, a Christian nonprofit with over $100 million in annual revenue that works to end all forms of human poverty around the world. Ben has worked in fundraising and development since 2003 and first joined Food for the Hungry in 2009 as the Senior Director of Sponsorship Acquisition. Ben then went and worked with Feed the Children in Museum of the Bible and returned to Food for the Hungry in 2018 and now works as their Chief Development Officer. Real quick before we get started, our team has a training coming up that you may be interested in. I'll share more details in a little bit, but for now, on to the show. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on, Trevor. Glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Ben, because you have such a diverse background working in fundraising and you've done it your whole career. Can you just tell us a little bit about that background and how you got involved? Sure thing. Um, You know, I think it's probably like a lot of folks in their careers that I, I feel like I, in some ways, tripped and fell into it. I graduated college with a psychology degree. During my senior year of college, I started getting very interested in humanitarian relief and development uh, work around the world. And so, um, very interested in it and fell in love with an organization called World Vision, um, a large um, humanitarian relief and development organization. And so, uh, upon graduating college, I basically begged World Vision for a job. My love for fundraising really started out um, more so with a love to help people and a want to help people. Um, and that desire um, really turned in later on to to a, to a love for fundraising. But really how this whole thing began was me just really wanting to work for this organization who was doing extraordinary things all around the world, helping people. Um, I had no idea that, you know, as I look back now, that was in 2003. As I look back now in 2019, I think that I, I would still be in, in the fundraising space um, and uh, and helping similar nonprofits. That's great. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience after World Vision, where you went to work with Food for the Hungry and help them building out and launching their child sponsorship program? Sure, sure thing. So um, in 2009, I received a phone call. I was at working World Vision. I was very happy. I wasn't looking for any other work um, and, and enjoying what I was doing. But I received a call from the chief development officer of Food for the Hungry at the time reached out to me and said, you know, Ben, we're really wanting to get serious about our acquisition of child sponsors. A couple of folks had suggested my name as as somebody to potentially lead that charge. They had an existing child sponsorship platform, but just really struggled, I think, to get things going over the years um, through acquisition. And so I threw several conversations, a trip out to Phoenix to sit down with Food for the Hungry and kind of hear more about what they were wanting to do, what they were wanting to see accomplished. Um, and then, of course, a lot more about their mission, I decided to to jump on board. So I, I launched a, um, a program out of Nashville called the Artist Program, simply called the Artist Program. And um, it's basically a, a partnership with with music artists that are traveling all around the, the country and even around the world in some instances and, uh, and playing music. And then during their performances at some point, they will talk about kind of their charity of choice, if you will. And so um, we launched that program and then built out some other uh, streams there. 
And over the course of four years, from 2009 to 2013, in 2013, left Food for the Hungry as the senior director of child sponsorship acquisition. So at that time, we had several different fundraising streams uh, of which we were uh, acquiring child sponsors. That's great. And did your strategy for using the artist program, did that come from your background living in Nashville? How did that come about? Yeah, that was really nothing new to the nonprofit sector. Um, there had already been some existing artist programs. I, at World Vision, um, worked alongside uh, the artists that they were uh, working with as well. Um, and so it was not necessarily a, a new idea. I definitely, in kind of launching it and creating it, I wanted to add some of my own thoughts and opinions and, and styles into how we um, partner with artists, what that looked like, and then just the culture that I wanted to create. And so we, we tried to build something that was, that, was, that was somewhat unique, but not necessarily unheard of within the industry. That makes sense. I think reoccurring revenue is something that a lot of nonprofits want to do and want to figure out how to do well. Can you walk us through, like, how would you go through creating a child sponsorship program from scratch and kind of tapping into that reoccurring revenue and what that would look like and the scale and size that would entail? Sure. I mean, I would say a couple things first. One is that monthly recurring revenue uh, needs to be a, a focus, a priority focus for most nonprofits. I know, I realize it's not for everyone. I really feel like if we're not taking advantage um, of monthly recurring giving, we're really missing it. And then not all nonprofits can start a child sponsorship uh, monthly recurring program. So it might look different depending on, on, on where you're leading and which nonprofit you're leading friend of mine, uh, Scott Harrison, who started Charity Water, who launched the Spring. Um, it's a monthly giving, monthly recurring uh, platform that is for folks that are wanting to partner with providing clean water for people all around the world. Well, obviously, he's not doing child sponsorship, but he's, he's experiencing great success in building a monthly recurring platform that is out, even outside of child sponsorship. I think what's happening across the nonprofit sector is people are really starting to see um, the benefits and the, the really the necessity of having some sort of monthly recurring program. Monthly recurring giving has grown 70% since 2013. So just in the last six years, it's grown 70%. A couple of just thoughts here and, 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 and statistics around monthly recurring giving. You know, recurring donors are twice as likely to give beyond one year as a single gift donor. Recurring donors are worth more than four times single gift donors over their lifetime of giving. Uh, the average recurring donor will give 42% more in one year than those who give one-time gifts. So, you know, just, just looking at some of the analysis um, around monthly recurring giving, we just need to be paying more attention to it and then providing more focus and strategic um, thought around this, um, this platform. Uh, you know, I, I think depending on the size of organization you're at, depending on what type of organization you're at, it's going to look different for everyone. I think there are some simple things that organizations can do. One is simply providing a monthly recurring button on their donation platform online. I'm amazed at how many organizations I go to their on their online site and, I just, and you know you go to the the give page and there's not even an option for monthly recurring. You know, knowing that, that the power of monthly recurring giving and knowing that the power that that holds, um, we should be very intentional about what we provide. Um, just something very simple. You know, in, in today's world, I, I would say, I think to your question on, on how to get started, how to build it from scratch, years ago, it was much more difficult because the expenses and the cultivation, 
the expenses and the, the kind of the back end support um, of what you're providing the donor. In today's world, we have so many platforms that provide uh, automation. Um, and so automation is really key in this and, and what you're able to provide as far as ongoing communication strategy and just really making sure that the donor feels like they are a part of your story. And so, you know, now you have peer-to-peer platforms and volunteers and all these different ways that digitally um, folks can engage in, in this. And I think that those a lot of those initiatives need to be married into the, the monthly recurring donation platforms. And so, and I, and I just, I think there's so much opportunity for it right now. Um, so I would say no matter the size of your organization, big or small, obviously, if you're starting with a very large donor file to begin with, you know, you're, you really, you really have a, a head start in, in um, kind of the acquisition of those folks as you cultivate them and steward them and um, talk to them about monthly recurring giving. And that's the other thing. I think educating your donors, educating the people, your prospects on the power of monthly recurring giving. You know, as we look today right now, as I'm thinking about the kind of the uncertainty of, of where we are in our um, economics uh, state right now, uh, we see the kind of yo-yo effect of the of Wall Street um, that's happened in the last several weeks. You know, there's a there's a little bit of uncertainty. Okay, is is, is the economy good? Or are we starting to hit a recession? There's all these these conversations that are that are going on right now. What I'm seeing across the sector is m- my friends that oversee large development programs that are solely based on major donor funding um, start to get really nervous during these times um, because they realize this could you know, heading into the, the year end here, the calendar year end, this can really impact their giving. The great thing about monthly recurring giving, especially what I call long tail monthly recurring giving, which just means smaller gifts, is is this idea that, you know, really we are not the first to get cut out uh, when, 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 when folks are looking at their monthly, uh, uh, you know, statements and bills and all these things. Their, their child, for our, in our case, their child sponsor, that the, you know, the child that they sponsor, is not the first bill that they cut out. It's not, we can't do this right now. That's, that's typically one of the last things to go. And so we have kind of seen over the course of time that in a way, monthly recurring giving can be somewhat recession-proof. Uh, we can kind of ride that storm and, and, and get through it and not experience you know, the ups and downs um, with the economy it doesn't impact our, our revenue as much. So I think that's another, um, you know, almost surprising element of monthly recurring giving is that is that you really have a real foundation for sustainable giving. So when your organization, you do child sponsorship as the primary role for monthly recurring donations, how do you keep the connection to the organization with the donor versus having, you know, the connection with the child? And that's a great question. And it's actually one of, it's probably one of our greatest, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it an obstacle to tackle, but it's just a challenge. Um, and and I, I think um, in some ways, you know, we're still finding those things out. Because honestly, when, when you're looking at donor retention, the best thing you can do um, for the long-term value of each sponsor is to really first them deeply engaged with the child. So the child comes first. The child is who they respond to. It's that power of one-to-one. You know, I can't save the world, but I can do something for this one. So we, we create that on the acquisition side. So 
but then how you cultivate them from there. Um, you know, those those first few months are really critical to our retention rates and holding on to these donors. And so the the way we you know have to make sure that they understand how their gift is changing the life of that particular child is very very key. Now what we do is you know first several months, six months or so, it's all about the child. And then as we move along, as we get further down the road, and we we pull them deeper deep and deeper into our um, file or you know for a longer period of time we can then begin to educate them on the organization as a whole and the overall, you know, the overarching mission of the organization. Um, it's obviously, it's much larger than one child. It's much larger than one family. It's much larger than one community. Over time, really drawing them in and educating them um, on, on the mission of the organization and the, the power of the organization um, while, while, while at the same time making sure that they understand that their gift matters in the life of their child. So it is a balance and really I'd say almost a tightrope that we walk um, in making sure that they still feel that connectedness that they felt that day that they sponsored or that night that they sponsored, but at the same time are really becoming more knowledgeable about uh, who Food for the Hungry is and how we work um, and really buying into to the organization as a whole. And then after this like 12-month period where you've spent the first six months talking about the child and then introducing him more to the organization. Do you do kind of a mix of the two beyond that? Or is it just interwoven where you give the updates of the child and the organization? How do you handle that? Yeah, it's completely interwoven. They will then begin to receive uh, materials that, that both talk about and educate around all, all that the organization is doing as a whole, but also they're getting uh, report card updates on how their child is doing in school. They're receiving um, different uh, activities and and maybe benefits of their communities that their, that their child's community is receiving um, because of their gift. So it is a both and um, as you continue and, and kind of keep walking this road with them, you want them to stay connected. And honestly, the greatest retention tool that we have, the greatest tool that we have to keep people connected to hold on to them is writing to their child. So they get a letter from their child, they can write to their child. That is the greatest retention tool that we have. And so we really have to couple that and marry that with the education of the organization as a whole and really helping them understand that, that yes, they are champions of this particular child, but they are also champions of the organization at large as well. Right. And that goes back to your whole connecting with the child by communicating back and forth that makes it that much more real. They have a real note from you. You have a real note from them. It's that bond and that uh, relationship. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop this February 26th through 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be teaching the seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and find new ones. This is an intimate workshop where we limit it just to 24 people so you can have one-on-one coaching so you can leave feeling confident, knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of our past attendees have said. Best thing I've ever done. I am so excited to have learned even more than I thought I could ever know. I've been reminded 
just how much I've forgotten about fundraising, about fundamental habits, developing consistency, thinking of new ways to attack the same problem. It's all covered in the seven figure fundraising workshops. I recommend them highly. The coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in, in a dozen years of fundraising. This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit and it's worth the time, the energy, and the money because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization and most importantly into you, the person who's executing it. This is going to make my life a lot easier because now I have the tools necessary to be more successful. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call with me to answer any questions you have about the workshop. I hope you'll join us in February. Now, back to the interview. So we've had like people who have come through our training um, that have run smaller nonprofits, like in the million dollar or less range that have small child sponsorship programs. And they've struggled a little bit because they haven't reached the right scale. Can you talk to us about what size you think makes sense to have a child sponsorship program? And then how do you go about finding new donors if you don't, say, have the size to have an artist program or something like that? Yeah, and I think, you know, there there is probably, especially on the child sponsorship side, because there is a donor expectation um, on the communication front, on the information front, uh, of information that they receive and detail that they receive about the life of their child. That is not cheap. Um, and so, so, you know, having that ongoing cultivation side of things, it probably is a critical mass that you need to, to get to. Now, I, I think, again, Every organization is different. So are we talking about working in multiple communities or one community? You know, because if we're talking about one community or two communities, it might be much more simple to have kind of a story writer and somebody that goes out to the to the field and, and, and brings in stories from the children and that sort of thing and has an ongoing communication piece with the, with the donors. I would say, to answer your first question, I don't know that there's necessarily... Because, you know, if, if they're smaller, they shouldn't do a child-sponsored organization. I think it, it might look a, a bit different. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the types of detailed information that you can provide um, might be limited based upon just overall resource. But I, I still believe that um, if, you can, if you can still talk about the power of your work and the impact of your work and connect that to the life of the child, I still think it's doable. Um, you know, I, I would love to look at each of these folks that are asking these these questions and look at a case by case basis and, and see how I could help them mold and shape their programs because I really I really feel like no matter the size of the organization that there is you you have capacity to do this. Um, and as far as acquisition goes, um, you know, there are there are many different ways to acquire. You know, one of the there's a organization called Compassion International, which has a large, they're a Christian-based organization. They have a large church program. They partner with churches all across the country, um, and churches sign up to uh, get kids sponsored in certain communities. Um, churches do the same thing with Food for the Hungry. They do the same thing with us. As I look at these different organizations, they all have their their niche, if you will, um, in, in acquisition streams. And so, again, I think it kind of depends on, on who your demographic is, who's going to be responding to this. But, um, you know, I would say on the digital front, there's opportunity for acquisition. On a volunteer front, on a peer-to-peer front, there is opportunity for acquisition. As social media continues to grow, as the influence in social media continues to grow, 
there are partnerships that you know that, that can be um, done with social media influencers um, that can help beef up acquisition on child sponsorship front. So I think there's many different lanes that that you, know, you can choose to run in. And I would say another thing that would, I think could be an interesting piece of this, and really it's something we did early on at Food for the Hungry. You know, when we first started the artist program, um, we didn't have a, just unlimited, unrestricted dollars. And so we went out and kind of created a, an appeal, if you will, to high capacity donors that would help us fund the artist program. Um, because we knew that the long-term value um, of these child sponsors would, would be enormous and would really put the organization in a much healthier place. And so I would say, you know, challenge these um, smaller nonprofits as well to say, could you find a seed donor who would say, yes, I buy into this strategy and I see that this could be a potential you know, 10 to 1, 12 to 1, 15 to 1 return long term for the organization. And so I want to help you, um, you know, to launch this particular acquisition stream or that one. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about artists, but I'm talking about, you know, any sort of acquisition uh, stream. So I think there are ways that you can kind of tackle that side of things, but it just really depends on some key factors like demographic and, and, other, and other pieces that that will determine which route you should go. Right. And that's such a great point about going to a major donor and saying, hey, do you want to fund setting up this project and this program? So is it like trying to get to 5,000 donors and 5,000 child sponsorship? And like, what does that look like as a cost, like per acquisition? Like, what are some rough numbers that someone should be thinking of for like back of the envelope math on just calculating how much a program like this would cost so they could present it to a major donor? Sure. I think that, you know, for one, um, volume is always going to bring down your, your overall cost, sure. right? So so the more the more you can acquire, the, the, the overall acquisition cost will go down. Really, acquisition costs, if you look across the industry, if you're just specifically talking about child sponsorship acquisition costs, they're really all over the map. The, the great thing is, you know, we know that every sponsor that comes in the door is worth more than $2,000 to us uh, over five years. So, um, so you know, every sponsor that comes in the door, we just know um, that, you know, that's, that's going to be the long-term donor value. So if you kind of compare that to your other your other fundraising streams. So if you're doing direct mail, what, what is your cost there? What is your cost per acquisition? What is your, um, of a, a, a new, you know, a new donor and, and how long does it take for you to get hold, um, to acquire that particular donor? If you're doing, you know, major donor cultivation, whatever it is that you're, that you're tackling, I would say to really, you know, look at, look at your, look at your costs. What, what are those, what are those costs to, to acquire those donors? And I would, I would be willing to, to pretty much bet on, on most of them that the uh, the monthly recurring donor acquisition is probably going to outpace uh, the ROI of most of the other fronts. I don't know that there's necessarily a, a perfect critical mass. So I don't know that I could say, once you get to 5,000, then you're going to see an ROI that's just, again, there are so many um, determining factors that, that kind of speak into your overhead cost. And, and that is what type of platform are you using? What CRM are you using? How much automation is there? You know, a, a huge piece of any kind of monthly recurring donor platform is, is it monthly recurring on credit card or are you having check writers? 
um, you know, we try to get all of our donors pushed over into to automatic monthly recurring, um, even EFT. EFT is different than credit card. So, um, you know, where it's just coming out of their account every month, they're not even having to think about it. They don't just sit down and write a check. And just the cost, you know, that it takes to, to process that and send the mailers and all of that that goes into it. So there are so many elements and pieces of it that would speak into kind of what it would cost you, especially on the cultivation side. But I think the positive side of this is that we're getting so much better from a technological standpoint and so much more efficient out there with, with things that are available to us and platforms that are available to us that, that this is becoming more and more doable and sustainable for even much, much smaller organizations. Right. And that, so just to like summarize, basically, if you're starting this program from scratch, look for a program or a CRM or the back end where it's mostly reoccurring through credit cards or automatic check withdrawals. Look at a calculation on what your lifetime value of that donor would be. And then look at, you know, what a percentage of the value of that lifetime donor might be the target for what that acquisition cost should be. So like if it's $2,000, maybe it's like 5% of that or something like that. And just test some numbers there and kind of experiment and test and see what your response is. Is that roughly how you would do it? That's it. That's it. Yeah. And then I, I would keep working with it. How, you know, how can we, how can we become more efficient? I mean, we're still a food for the hungry. We have a hundred and uh, see, I don't know what it is this month, but 140 something thousand monthly recurring donors. Wow. Um, and so, um, as you look at that and you think, because we get some folks in the industry that are smaller than, than us, or there are those that are much larger than us too, but they're smaller than us that come in and they think, Oh, you must have everything perfect. And everything's just all figured out. We're, we're working on it too. We're trying to get better too and more efficient. Um, we want to get more money to the field. You know, we mm-hmm. want to get more dollars into the, into the, um, impacting the lives of our beneficiaries. And, and so, so that's, that's a huge point of emphasis for us too, is how do, how do we get better? How do we keep lowering that number? The hard part about it is, I mean, you, you know, Trevor, this, it's not getting cheaper to raise a buck, unfortunately. Right. Um, and um, as, as more nonprofits you know, continue to launch throughout the United States, um, it becomes more competitive um, for, for both major donors and, and long tail donors alike. It's not necessarily getting cheaper to raise a dollar. However, we can do better on our system side. We can do better on our cultivation side and our efficiencies and our systems and processes to make sure that we are maximizing every dollar that does come in the door. Right. That's such a great point on maximizing and making sure you're having more efficiencies. I want to just shift gears a little bit and just talk about your experience with Museum of the Bible. And can you... I think that's really a fascinating story about how you went about uh, acquiring donors. Um, so you can tell us about your experience launching Museum of the Bible and the part of the project where you had to find 25,000 donors in 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the Museum of the Bible um, part of my story was such an interesting time. I kind of stepped out of this humanitarian relief development side of things. Um, and, and really, uh, you know, went into to the museum space. Um, and, um, you know, the museum was such an interesting story for me in that here you had this family um, that, that were the seed funders for this incredible, huge vision um, to tackle this, this massive vision of building uh, a Smithsonian-quality uh, museum in Washington, D.C. that was all around 
the the history, um, the impact on the narrative of the Bible. And so such an interesting time, such an interesting dream and vision, if you will, um, to, to kind of launch this thing. The, the interesting piece of it was here you had this family that that wanted to to give a very large portion of the funding um, but they didn't want to do it alone and and you know they were incredibly generous but they really believed that this project was bigger than them um, and and so they wanted to invite others to be a part of it so a 501c3 was launched museum of the bible was launched and you know here we are as we're, we're operating but we have this large source of funding coming from one one singular family. Um, well, you know, from a public funding standpoint, we had to kind of reach a certain threshold of donors to, to make sure that to make sure that we were kind of within the, the guidelines of being a, a true uh, you know nonprofit, a true mm-hmm. charity, not not a foundation. And so um, we needed to get to about twenty five thousand donors. And so that twenty five thousand actually ended up and Trevor, I don't know how much I shared this with you, but um, previously, but that twenty-five thousand actually turned into. What if we got a million donors? What if we got a million people wow. um, to say that they wanted to stand with this museum? Um, you know, no, no matter you know, no matter what lens you view the Bible through, whether you think it's you know kind of the Word of God and you kind of stand on it, or or if you think it, it's a a great piece of literature that you enjoy reading from time to time, no matter what lens you viewed it through, um, we wanted to invite everyone to kind of explore the book and really to be a part of this story and this launch of this of this museum in Washington, D.C. And so um, we thought, what if we can get a million people to say, you know, yes, I, I, I want to I see this thing come to fruition. So uh, we launched our Million Names campaign and we're able to pretty quickly bring on those 25,000 donors and, and, and many more. Now, we we did not reach our million mark. <laughs> and I, I don't know if they're still, I need to probably check up on them and see how they're doing today um, on that front. But but we did um, have several hundred thousand. So um, it was a it was a very neat project. It was a, an incredible, um, really, it's one of those, you know, the BHAG, as they call it, the big area audacious goal, you know, can we get a million donors to, to be a part of this? And, um, and it's something to, to this day, it was, uh, you know, it's, I chuckle about it now, but in the, in the moment, I, I wholeheartedly I thought, I thought this is, we're going to, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to get a million people to, to, to donate. So, um, that's a little bit about that story, but it, it's, uh, you know, the museum is there today. If you go to DC, uh, check it out. It, it's, um, it is quite spectacular. There was, um, you know, it's 400 and over 400,000 square feet of, of space and quite an interesting uh, museum to walk through. Oh, that's so neat. And one of the things I always enjoy about talking with you, Ben, is like the scale and scope of all the projects that you do. Because like most people would getting to 25,000 seems crazy. And then you're talking about, oh, actually, we're going to try to go for a million names. Do you mind just sharing like some of the strategies you guys use to get to that like 200,000 or whatever, you know, you got to in that time frame? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the things was, um, you know, we kind of had this idea that what if, what if everybody could be honored um, in some way? And that, that was, again, kind of going back to the family who were the generous original supporters of this, um, of this mission of saying, we believe this is for everyone. 
This is not for one family. This is not for one, um, even just religious group or, or denomination or anything like that. This is this is really for everyone to come and enjoy and, and to experience this book that, you know, regardless of your thoughts on it, has, has shaped history. And so we really tackled many different fronts. Um, we did social media. We did peer-to-peer. We did um, uh, live events. Uh, we partnered with, with um, again, kind of the music artist front and, and uh, went out and, and did a lot of live events. Um, we um, held events at the museum. We held events all across America. So we, we, we married it in with our some of our major donor event um, uh, opportunities and, 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 and kind of galas that we held all across the country um, and, and really had, um, you know, a, a real neat kind of, um, momentum and, and stirring of, of people looking at this and saying, yeah, a million names. Wow, I want to I be a part of that. I mean, we partnered with everything from, from music artists that were out on, on the road to, um, I remember one of the things we did was we, we partnered with a homeschool, homeschool convention. Um, and so we had uh, all these parents and kids from, um, from that were homeschooled all across America that, that would come to these conventions and, and say, yeah, well, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to be a part of this. And so, um, really neat uh, but it, it really ran the gamut i mean we, we did direct mail and a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and was there one like strategy in particular that was surprisingly successful that you never would have guessed would be successful or something that was kind of unique that surprised you i, I would say um you know and, and some of the, some of the things that i hope today are um one is that once those folks are, are brought in the door, as, as they were stewarded and cultivated well, um, you know, a few of them, especially that came from the from the music events, some of the folks that came in that said, yeah, I'll give $30, I'll give $40 to, to be a part of the, the Million Names campaign, um, eventually became much larger donors. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of um, and, and into that, uh, and the old school way of saying is the donor funnel, you know, um, and as they, as they kind of work their way um, uh, up the funnel, they, they really, you know, became significant supporters for the organization. So really neat thing to see and, and just a, you know, an exciting thing to be, to be a part of on the ground level. So now that you've kind of done that and that had that really cool experience, you're now back working with Food for the Hungry in the chief development officer role. You've done that for about six months or a year now. What's different about that role versus all of these other fundraising roles you've had? Yeah, I, I would say um, one is that, uh, so I, I came back to Food for the Hungry uh, March of 18, um, really excited to get back into the humanitarian relief and development space. Um, you know, again, I, I, I started this whole journey in fundraising because I, I really wanted to help people. And, um, and so had a, having kind of a full circle moment of, of, of Coming back into this humanitarian relief space, um, and then last October one, starting as chief development officer for this organization that um, that I love so dearly, um, and I think the hardest part for me has been um, letting go of some of the doing. Um, you know, I had a, a friend tell me once. He said, "You know, Ben." You're you're going to get to the a place in your career where that, and I think he, I think this is a, a borrowed quote, but if you're going to get to a, a place in your career where you're you're going to start being paid for what you know and not what you do necessarily, <laughs> and um, and so 
um, you know, I, I start to see a little bit of that now. As um, uh, in fact, a colleague was saying to me the other day, you know, Ben, you have you know, all these days just meetings back to back to back to back all day long. How do you get your work done? <laughs> and um, and I said that's really funny because actually that's a, that's a real um, element that I have I've wrestled with is that I get to the end of a day and I thought, okay, now that I've I've done all these I've had all these meetings, how can I get my work done? And and for me to come you know, to really face this, this reality. And that is my work. My work is leading people now. It's, it's leading development. Yes. Um, I have my own caseload of donors. I do. I have a small caseload of donors that I carry, um, that I, that I reach out to, but because of the diversity of funding within food for the hungry, a large percentage of our donors is what we've exactly been talking about in this monthly recurring space. Right. So it, it's, it's not major donor development. That is the, the primary source. However, that is an area that, that, I see opportunity in that we need to continue to grow. Um, and so it is an area of focus, but, but we have this broad diversity of different revenue coming in. And so I need, as the chief development officer, I, I need to be involved in all of that. Probably the, the, the challenge for me has been to be okay with giving direction, giving, you know, pointing us in the right direction or providing leadership or providing insight from experiences that I've had. Um, and leading us in the right direction and, and being okay with not necessarily feeling like I'm getting my hands dirty every day or I'm doing all of the donor calls or I'm doing all of you know things that need to be done or signing of artists or whatever it might be, but but letting that be okay and me kind of, you know, settling into this idea of of leading this organization and making sure that I'm I'm seeing around um, every corner and 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 trying to, f- to spot things before they become uh, an, an issue or an obstacle for the organization. Right. And that's such a like interesting paradox you have where you get the job because you have all this diverse experience and all that, and that helps you make better decisions, but then you kind of miss like kind of the being in the trenches, so to speak, um, with the, you know, actually talking with donors or like you said, signing an artist and those sort of things. So to wrap up, we like to ask our guests on the show to have a challenge for our listeners on what's one thing they can do based on what you've told them today, or what's one thing they should look at with their nonprofit based on the information that you've given. It's a great question, Trevor. I would say, uh, I think two things. And one is cultural. I would say there is nothing more important to your organization than your staff and your donors. There's nothing more important to your organization than your staff and your donors, and both of them must know how they fit into the mission of your nonprofit. They, from the most mundane task that your administrator does every single day when he or she walks into the office and and starts working on their computer, uh, to be able to extrapolate that mundane task into how that is affecting and impacting the overall mission of the organization. They should be able to make that tie-in because inspiration in our space and the nonprofit sector is vital. Um, and so, so making sure. And then the same goes with on the donor side. That understanding of how they fit into your mission um, is, is central. It's key um, to being able to move your organization forward. I would say from a practical standpoint, um, diversify, diversify, diversify to weather the storms. Um, don't become so reliant on a singular revenue stream. If you have great monthly recurring 
donor file and you have sustainability and funding, great. Go build your major donor file. Spend, invest, and resource that area to grow it and make sure that you are not a one-trick pony. Um, if you are have all of your eggs in, in the major donor basket, go and invest in monthly recurring donors. You have, if you have a story to tell where monthly, monthly, or where major donors are giving to your nonprofit, then you have a story to tell that monthly donors will give to your nonprofit. So you need to identify what product it is, create it, and and streamline it, and go after that long tail, and make sure that when recessions come and things and uncertainty hits, um, that you have a, a channel that will help you weather that storm. That's such valuable advice, especially on the long tail looking at both. You know, if you have one, go get the other. So where can listeners find out more about Food for the Hungry? Sure, I'd love for them to go and check out FH.org. Um, go to FH.org, read about all that we're doing around the world. Incredible, incredible work from, you know, disaster relief. Um, you know, when, when disasters strike around the world, we typically we're there, we're working um, all the way to um, long-term community development to graduating communities from extreme poverty. Our goal is not to is not to to move in and be there forever. Our goal is to walk alongside people and empower them to change their own environment so that we no longer have to to, to be there and living in those communities. Um, and they graduate, they become self-sustainable, and they have um, a flourishing future. So that that's our that's our great mission. Well, great. And thanks for being on the show, Ben. And thanks for all the great work you're doing with Food for the Hungry. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Seven Figure Fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.